Hello and welcome to episode 12 of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. In this episode, I'm speaking with Hannah Loftus, an architect and town planner based in Essex. Hannah is co-director of HAD Projects, but it was her relatively new role in planning that I was keen to speak about, particularly its relationship to the practice and product of architecture, its sensitivity to community voices, and the pressures it endures from both commercial and political forces. It is a negotiation and as planners we're constantly having to say, well, what are the most important things? Which are the things that we really want to push for in this scheme? Which are the things that we're going to have to compromise on? We're not going to be able to get what we want out of this. But which are the few things that are really important? A's for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello, I'm here this evening with Hannah Loftus of Hat Project. Hannah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Hannah. Uh, I'm one of the two directors at Hat Projects. We're a very small architecture and uh, related disciplines practice, I suppose I might say, based in Essex in Colchester. We do buildings, we also do public realm, we also do some policy and research work um, and a lot of work around engagement and, and kind of community participation as well in all of those processes. I'm also a chartered planner. Um, I have a role for, which I've had for the last three and a half years working with the Greater Cambridge Shared Planning Service. So that's the planning service for the whole of Cambridge City and South Cambridgeshire. Um, and I lead engagement and communications for the service. So that's a really wide role where I get involved with policy, plan making, um, consultation and engagement in various shapes and forms. Uh, and helping the wider team get their heads around how they can best talk to communities um, and get the best out of those relationships with the communities that we serve and, and with the organisations within them. Brilliant. So can you explain, I suppose, what town planning, what a town planner does that is distinct from, um, well, yeah, just I'll sort of unpack that, I suppose. Yeah, it's a really funny term, isn't it, town planning? We have the the, the the sort of chartered body as the Royal Town Planning Institute, and it sounds like something out of the 1930s, which it kind of really is. Um, but planning as a discipline uh, today, at any rate, um, really has, I suppose, two sides to it. Firstly, it is making policy about places. So it is setting the rules, the plans, that shape what can be built, where, how much of it can be built, how it should be built, what sort of form and shape it might take. Uh, and secondly, it is then assessing all of the different applications and proposals that come in as planning applications against those rules. So we sort of set the rules and then we're also in charge of enforcing them, which is a really unusual situation, actually. Normally the people who are the lawmakers are not also judge and jury over, over people who uh, do or don't break those laws. Um, but in planning, one of the paradoxes of planning is that we do do both, uh, uh, certainly within the public sector of the planning profession. Um, and then within the private sector, you know, planning consultants are, you know, really a bit like lawyers. I think one of the, for me, one of the most analogous uh, disciplines to planning these days is actually law in the way that law is practiced, because so much of it is about shaping arguments, using evidence, uh, testing uh, theories, uh, whether they are 
uh, theories about what should or shouldn't happen, whether it is the evidence to prove that a proposal does or doesn't meet the requirements that are set out in policy. Um, and in, in many ways, it, it is like lawyers in court arguing with each other a lot of the time. It becomes uh, a question of whose evidence is better, whose case is better. And at the end of the day, there's a really difficult judgment call to say, well, what, what do we think in the end of the day? What do we decide? That's really clear. And, and so the origins of town planning as a kind of enterprise in the UK, I was reading one of the uh, papers you shared with me earlier, um, has its origins in the 1930s, in the pre-war period, is that right? Yeah, it gradually becomes a discipline. I mean, I, I think, as always, these things never have an exact start date, but one of the most formative moments in town planning um, was in the late 1930s, coming up to the uh, war period, um, where before, before the war, there was an increasing amount of concern around uh, unregulated development across the country. So plots of agricultural land that were being bought up and subdivided into little plots and sold off to people to build their own homes on, for example, the sort of plotlands phenomenon. Um, what was seen as rather unregulated sprawl over the wonderful countryside. Uh, and, and as a result, many people started to think we needed some more rules, we needed some more regulation around all of this, we needed to control development. Uh, and, and I suppose the modern discipline of, of planning certainly originates from then. Obviously, there were previous things that are kind of like planning. I mean, you could go back to the, the Great Fire of London, for instance, and the rules that were brought into place about how wide streets could be and the materials that you could use on the outside of your buildings um, as a way of stopping fire. And you could see those as sort of either the antecedent of planning or the antecedent of building regulations, depending on which side of the fence you might sit on. Um, but certainly there's a spatial aspect to that, um, which I think has some analogies to planning. So but there's yes, a, so there's, so there's, so there's a, no, after you, Hannah, after you. <laughs> well, the, the, the Town and Country Planning Act, which is the sort of uh, original uh, piece of planning leg legislation that still really shapes what we do today, has its origins out of the 1930s and came into being in the mid 1940s uh, and has really shaped what we do ever since. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it, that we have a kind of heritage would you would you say that the, the 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 approach to planning has kept pace with the nature of sort of life, contemporary life, or is is planning always playing catch up with reality? I think the latter. I I don't think it has kept pace as a practice, uh, and it is difficult. So planning is a long term proposition by mm -hmm. any means. The plans that we put in place uh, are realised over many decades often, and certainly then their consequences continue to influence and become apparent for many decades after even what you might notionally call sort of completion of, of, a, mm -hmm. of a plan or of the development anticipated in a plan. So it is a constantly ongoing thing, and we are certainly always playing catch up, but I, I definitely do feel that the processes of planning have become steadily more complicated and more involved in a way that isn't uh, conducive to keeping pace with very rapid social change or very rapid change in 
methods of construction, even methods of involvement of, of how people lead their daily lives, social research and so forth. It's um, really, I mean, it's a really interesting idea because as you were talking, I was just thinking that, and, and again, going back to this, one of these texts that, of, of yours, as you say, you know, you plan for 30 years down the line. And, and you make this very interesting point about the most, normally the most engaged people are in their 60s because they got the time and capital to get engaged and they're not actually going to see the fruits of it. And, and a number of the documents you sent me try and deal with the idea of getting younger people involved. But it's a, it's a process that's intimately tied to political realities and yet has to somehow plan distinct from political realities and even the economic cycle. It's kind of got this strange quality about it. Yes, and the interaction between politics and planning is really tricky because the political cycles are very, very short. Mm -hmm. And that's really where some of the ideas around how we use evidence come into play. So at least in theory, planning policy, so the making of, of planning policy at the various different levels at which it happens, is meant to be evidence-led. It's not meant to be politically-led. It's meant to be about gathering the best available evidence uh, and applying that to your area of, of sphere of influence and deriving uh, what are meant to be sort of objectively the best policies, plans, sites, and so forth out of that process. Of course, you know, we know that the idea of objectivity is, is always a tricky one. If we start saying that things are purely evidence-led, there's always a judgment call there, isn't there? Mm. It never is just about the evidence. And so the role of politics is very tricky. But And many of the challenges that planning has are about negotiating that. We have planning committees which decide on many of the most important planning applications, and they're made up of politically elected representatives. They're meant to be working outside of their political roles when they sit on that committee. They're not meant to be making decisions based on their politics. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think it's really possible to ask a set of councillors to suddenly put their politics at the door and not worry about whether or not they're going to get voted in the next time round. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if there's a controversial application in their, in their area or in their ward, of course they're going to take a view on that. And even at the policy level, you know, the final arbiter on, on planning policy is the Secretary of State, Minister and Government. So you can develop all the evidence you want. You can do the tens of thousands of pages of documentation to justify why you think we're doing the right thing. At the end of the day, it will go to the Secretary of the State and the Secretary of State may take a different view and, and come back and say, you know, we think you should be doing something else here. So it is a very tricky one uh, because those political realities do come and bite. And we've seen that really recently with some of the election results in by-elections and so forth over the last year, where suddenly issues of, of planning and development have at least been uh, blamed for or, or, or they, they've been ascribed as the causes for some, some notable upsets and some by-elections. So... The recent, obviously, the, the, the Conservative government that we've got, they came up with this new approach to planning. So, which rhetorically at least foregrounds community voice. Um, I don't know really what that means. And I was wondering, and, and it's an extremely um, ideological move. 
based around conservative principles, but it's going to have, if, if what you are saying is, you know, you've got these very long-term visions that are required. So things that were being planned at the beginning of the millennium, 20 years ago, are now hitting this, that reality. But there's the other reality, of course, which is in the last 20 years, this emergence of this uh, consciousness about environmental sustainability. So how do these plans, these long-term plans, which were seeded maybe a decade or two ago, how do they, how do they negotiate that? Do they just get scrapped or do they get kind of reinterpreted? Yeah, great question. So um, they don't just get scrapped. Uh, a, a local plan, let's just take a typical local plan mm-hmm. for an area. So every district council in the country is meant to have one. And sometimes, as in Cambridge, they team up with a neighbouring one to, to make a joint plan. How often are they no. made? It's a pretty much a continuous process. Is it? Right. You will get your plan made. It will probably take you five years to get it from first, uh, first sort of consultations, initial research through to uh, being adopted. Um, and then almost immediately, you'll be going back and starting either a local plan review or starting planning for your next plan. So it, it, it really does never stop. However, the, the force, the weight that is put onto the plans is the ones that are adopted. So you're absolutely right. You could have a plan that was adopted 10 or 15 years ago, and that still carries more weight than anything that's emerging policy at this point in time. So it is difficult, and a site may be allocated in a plan from 10 or 15 years ago, and that may be a strategic site of five or 10,000 homes and at house building rates, which will only build out at a few hundred homes a year, that will keep building. And that may be at a density that by today's standards, we think is really low from a sustainability perspective that may have uh, transport connections or access routes or green spaces that again, with what we know now about biodiversity collapse and so forth, don't feel appropriate. And, And there are relatively few levers for us as planners to start influencing them and and changing them along the way, which is really problematic. And this is where it becomes very legalistic, because of course, then you'll get things like the forthcoming environment bill, which which if it comes through uh, parliament this session, is likely to say that we should be having 10% biodiversity net gain in every site. And we have yet to know whether that will really come into force in a way that means it applies to, let's say an outline planning application, that had been given permission before the environment bill, when that comes through to detailed matters, detailed design reserve matters, is it going to suddenly be required to meet that 10%? And these are some of the really difficult things that's why you end up with lots of very well paid planning barristers and planning lawyers and consultants fighting this stuff out ultimately in appeal hearings and so forth. And it it is very much like a branch of the law where you have something that comes in the only way you really know how forceful it is or how, what, how impactful it can be is when it's tested in the courts, when you get those first cases that come through, whether they were cases about you know, sexual assault, for instance, when you know, the first laws on those came through and the case law starts to make the, the precedent. Um, and that's really important in planning as well. We can't just do what we want based on what we think at that moment in time, we have to be constantly thinking about all the other appeal decisions, all the decisions all over the country and what the risks are there. Mm -hmm. 
But to come to your other point about community engagement in the planning bill, I mean, I think that the, the, the planning white paper, uh, I would say, did not foreground community voice at all. It actually, its original proposals were a reduction in the amount of community participation in the planning process. And that's one of the things that many Conservative MPs as well have become very angry about, and I suspect that will be dropped. But the original, the original proposals in the planning white paper were actually that in a what they were going to call a growth zone, uh, planning applications would be have a sort of slightly more automatic approval and members of the public would not be allowed to comment on those planning applications at all in those growth zones. So I think one of the things that is important to kind of, for me to understand, when you're talking about highly paid barristers, planning barristers, we're not talking here about um, planning at the scale of the domestic extension. We're talking here about volume house building, large-scale industrial land uses. And one of the things that struck me when I was working up in Glasgow was that planning seemed, possibly because of these well-paid uh, uh, legal eagles, planning seemed to be able to operate with a very heavy hammer against tiny things, and almost have no power in relation to larger scale things. And I, 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 I've always struggled with this because it felt very, you know, trying to get domestic extensions built myself and the amount of oversight was hilariously over the top and then watching just giant swathes of, of uh, appalling housing being built with apparently just the sweep of somebody's pen somewhere. I, and I, I just wondered, uh, 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 a little bit about that like how does planning how how does planning deal with that kind of that that problem of scale that is at its heart yeah i think you're absolutely right i think that is the experience of planning for a lot of people is that on the scale of your extension you've got endless hoops to jump through and it just feels like a complete nightmare and, and yet as you say you know whole fields of houses can be built and it doesn't look like there's any sort of pain in that process Behind the scenes, I wouldn't say that's always the case with those big house builders and those sites. There is a lot of pain in the process. There's a lot of negotiation uh, and there's a, a lot of back and forth. But yes, fundamentally, as in so many aspects of our, our world, our life, uh, money and, and power and influence are interlinked, aren't they? So if you're building 200 homes or you're proposing to build 200 homes on a, on a field somewhere or on a brownfield site and the planning authority is required to meet its uh, housing delivery targets by government, otherwise you get sort of put into special measures and um, have your wrists slapped quite badly. There is an incentive there for the planning authority ultimately does really need to permit that. Mm -hmm. It will try its best to get better quality out of it. It will try its best to, to negotiate uh, and, and squeeze some more value for the public out of it. But ultimately, if you, if you hold your standards up um, above your delivery, you can end up in a very, very st sticky situation. And the house builders know that. So, you know, it is, it is a negotiation. And as planners, we're constantly having to say, well, what are the most important things? Which are the things that we really want to push for in this scheme? Which are the things that we're going to have to compromise on? We're not going to be able to get what we want out of this. But which are the few things that are really important 
that might be a new cycle route, that might be a better walking connection to the town centre, or it might be something around sustainability or design. Uh, but you're unlikely to be able to get all of it. Mm-hmm. Whilst, whilst we'd all love to have it all, the reality is that um, we are in a quite a weak position because when we're required to meet targets, we're mm-hmm. required to meet our, the, the housing delivery targets that are set, um, and those do bind our hands to a degree. But what's changed between, say, for example, the post-war suburban expansions of cities like Liverpool and Manchester, and well, everywhere, really, where when you go to places like Withenshaw or Birkenhead, the old, the you know 1950s parts of it, what you now see is yeah rather undense, but really really high quality, actually, and you know the homes fit for heroes thing is one of them, but but even the kind of yeah pretty much any suburban area of the post-war period is actually now um, sort of unimaginable that that volume house builders would produce that what what. What is the significant thing? Is it the is it the lack of a role of architect in there, or is there a lack of capacity at the level of design? Because I think, so speaking from the perspective of an architect, nearly an architect, uh, just I just want to emphasise that <laughs> no false advertising. Um, that that um, whilst all these things like uh, uh, cycle lanes and and uh, biodiversity are, are, are sort of nice. Ultimately, they're badly designed, a lot of these settlements. And how has that happened? I mean, you can't answer that, but I mean, what, what, what do you think? What is the main? I think there's a few different factors at play. Um, we obviously had a huge deregulation um, that happened in the 1980s and, and through to the early 1990s. Uh, and, and at the same time, we've also had a massive decline in local authorities or the public sector as a, as a whole, building housing and being more directly involved with delivery of homes. So, you know, if you look at the post-war period, the vast majority of the kind of housing that was being built after that period was being built by the government in different forms, local government mm-hmm. and central government. And, you know, and those weren't just the sort of 1960s estates of that people love to knock down now if you're a Conservative minister, but they're also the suburban dwellings, the, the mm-hmm. suburban estates on sinks of Beckentree, for instance, in London, you know, massive, massive, huge development or Harlow, all of those new towns that are, have many different typologies in them mm-hmm. from an architectural perspective. Uh, and I think that when the public sector gets involved with delivering homes, there is a different emphasis on quality of design because there's a longevity that they're interested in. They're interested in whether that is going to be a place that is going to actually last. You know, if they if they were imagining they were going to own and manage manage the homes, they wanted to have own home own homes that they could own and manage successfully that weren't going to start falling apart on them very very quickly. And of course, they didn't always manage that. We you know, you know, some of the prefab blocks and so forth that went up were really badly built using new technology that wasn't well tested and so forth. But at that scale, if you like, of some of those more cottage estates or suburban estates that did spring up, there is a certain quality there. I'm, I know that architects love to say it's all about the lack of an architect, and I think there's something in that, but I don't think it is all of the story. We've had very, very poor 
standards for housing for, for a number of years. And actually, I think this is actually starting to improve. I mean, it's, it's only a few years since we've had mandatory space standards back again. So we actually have a minimum size for the inside of the house and minimum floor to ceiling heights. And most local authorities will now have a policy on outdoor space and you know minimum sizes for gardens or balconies if you're in flats and so forth. All of those things are really important drivers for quality. And in the, the, the more ambitious local authorities, you can see that bearing fruit. Yeah. You can see the quality of housing is actually improving. It isn't that widespread. It is. It, it comes out from you know some of the bigger and more confident planning teams and local authorities. And of course, it comes out from the areas where there are higher values to be made because you're less likely to be beaten down on viability. Yeah. Uh, but that viability question is, is fundamental. You know, we do have a very flawed system of valuing land, in, in, in my view, in this country. Um, essentially, the price that someone paid for that land is, is never really questioned. It's just put into the equation. Um, and then, you know, then a developer will say, well, you know, I, I can only spend this much on the house. I can only spend this much on uh, the materials, the quality, the detail and so forth. And that's a pretty difficult conversation in a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I want to, other than design, there is this word and it brings me out in hives and you used it in one of your, one of your texts that you sent. Uh, I think it was in the one for public practice, which um, uh, I'll link to in, in the description, but it's this word placemaking. I want to know what placemaking is because my my gut, my, word. <laughs> my gut feeling is a bit it's a bit like saying Christopher Columbus discovered America you know other than the two million native indigenous people that were there um, yeah sure he did um, it's a bit like it feels to me a bit like that that you know you're saying you're going to make a place of somewhere that probably is a place already to somebody so I kind of want to and, and but my 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 feeling, my gut feeling is that this relates to the idea of the generation of some form of cultural, social capital and value within new development or within regeneration. Am I right? Actually, I, I probably use that term. It is an absolutely horrible term and I, lots of us across the whole of the built environment sectors are constantly trying to find a different word or a different different verb to be able to use to describe the variety of disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose on one level, you might say that we use placemaking as, as a term because the word planning has become sort of poorly understood, well, probably always was poorly understood, but is poorly understood. And maybe the two things are quite analogous to me it is actually just a way of bringing together all of the different disciplines that contribute to making really the physical environment actually um, more than more than perhaps those intangibles around uh, what makes a community and you're absolutely right all the places they are they do already exist we don't actually make places from scratch it's a bit like you know land the land was always there the land will always be there um, however I think there is some value in trying to think holistically across architecture, landscape, transport, infrastructure, 
nature, agriculture even, uh, and, and trying to see all of those as contributing to uh, shaping, maybe might be a better verb than making, uh, the places that we live and inhabit. And I think there has been a, a lot of difficulty in the kind of siloed way of thinking. And, and that's really, I think, what the term, why people use the term placemaking place is to, to try and break down that kind of siloed mentality whereby a highways engineer is just a highways engineer and an architect is just an architect and everybody sticks within their little, their little box and their little boundary mm-hmm. and all of the stuff that is at the friction points between them is the stuff that gets done really badly. Mm-hmm. And actually, to me, you know, you come back to this question about why are so many places, you know, these sort of housing, fields of houses on the outskirts of kind of middle-sized Midlands towns or whatever, really awful. <laughs> to me, a lot of that is because nobody is has been joining the dots between all of the different factors there and nobody's been saying, well, actually, how does this add up? The house may be kind of okay, but the layout of those, those houses is terrible and the way it meets the neighbouring development or the liminal junction to the existing community is really awful and just has some close-bordered fences. And, you know, there's, there's no one's actually looking carefully at the boundaries and, and trying to transgress them and, and make them more permeable so that you get something that has a degree of, of integration, a degree of to, a holistic kind of character, holistic distinctiveness really as a place, yeah. um, rather than just an assemblage of bits that have just landed. I suppose this comes back to the, this issue of the, the, the um, de, um, deregulation of housing. So when, when councils were doing it, there could be this, this joined up quality. And you go to these suburban estates, as you say, you know, they're, they're kind of remarkable for, for, for the fact that they do seem to have, um, though they can, they can be quite uniform, they do seem to have a sense of place about them. And, uh, you know, places like Harlow and, as you say, Beckentry and places, uh, Withenshaw in, in, in Manchester, they really are quite, they're actually quite lovely places to be in. Mm. Um, so, it, so it must be a very complex job of actually, I suppose the question I'm looking at is how do you get buy-in? Do you get buy-in from commercial developers? Is, is, the, is the commercial developer intre- interested in placemaking? That is to say, is the lack of place about the places they developed not intentional? And would they rather that their places, the, the housing estates that they build, would they rather that they were full of a sense of place? I mean... I, I guess again, it's not a question that you personally can answer. Uh, but when you're, you know, and I, and I think we need to be careful because you look at uh, Harlow or Beckentree or all of these places when they were built, and they were decried for all of the same reasons as we decry our new build estates today. Yeah. You know, monotonous and soulless, and you've got to go miles to go to a shop, and it's all really terrible. Um, and you know, I think there have been a number of really interesting sort of studies and looking at how these places have grown up and evolved over time. And the reality is it takes time. It takes a lot of time to know whether a place is really successful or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, there's a little bit of me that whilst, you know, I, I also drive, you know, drive around and look at these things and half the time think, God, I can't believe this has been allowed to happen. I'm mindful of not having too much snobbery about it. 
So just a, a small story on this. So I went to um, Camborne, which is a uh, new, well, it was originally sort of conceived as a new village. It's really more of a town now. In fact, it's just graduated from having a parish council to having a town council. And, and it's a few miles outside Cambridge. And it's been built from the kind of late 80s through, and it's still being built and it's going to see a lot more development can happen over the coming decades. And I went and did a session with um, some young people in the youth club there last week, because this point about, well, they're the people who all this change is going to really, is going to really affect them. Like, what do they think about Campbell and what do they think works and doesn't work and is nice and isn't nice. And, you know, it was actually really interesting how much they liked it. Mm. There was stuff they didn't like, you know, not enough shops, not enough stuff to do in their spare time. But there was also stuff that they really liked about what maybe a lot of architects might see as quite a kind of generic sort of housing development with lots of semi-detached and detached houses and car parking and, you know, sort of slightly dull neo-vernacular styling. But, the, you know, a lot of these kids actually really liked the community that had grown there and as somewhere that is now got you know there was one actually one of the youth workers had grown up in Campbell and was one of the first 100 families to move there um, and she went away to university and did a couple of things and is now back working as a youth mm -hmm. worker there so she's seen like the whole of Campbell's trajectory if you like over time and it was just really interesting. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about being too damning too early in the day. Having said that, I think that the big issues to me uh, come back to this question around climate and sustainability and actually are these places going to start to become very problematic as we enter into climate emergency because of their card, card dependency. Yeah. I think there are places that can be relatively successful and actually quite happy if low density suburban and, and sort of mm -hmm. any rural communities in their own way, um, when everybody's able to drive their two cars around and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. When you start to look forward a decade or two and that just isn't an option, mm -hmm. that's going to be a really interesting one to see how they fare. And the, the, the other side, I think, is, is, is also very problematic is actually the, the extremely urban. So, you know, all of those big apartment buildings that have gone up in, in London and Manchester and so forth, which have been sold to offshore buyers. And if you look at the trajectory of, of property values and the problems with the cladding scandal and so forth, I think there's a huge risk around those. I think they could be you know, the slums of the future go very quickly from being seen as a luxury product to be sold on the offshore market to being somewhere that is, you know, it, it, it's the sinker state of the future. It's almost, it's unlivable, unsellable, people are trapped. It's, mm. it, it could be a really, really big issue. That's really interesting. I'm, I mean, you're not the first person to accuse me of having sort of snobbish uh, uh, attitudes about things so and you won't be the last but uh <laughs> but it's but i i think you're right and and i and i say these things to provoke you in a way i do i mean my gut feeling is that they won't even last long enough that that the sinker yeah. state of these the the particularly stuff built from the 80s and 90s onwards are very very cheaply made 
and that you know where whereas those sort of post-war suburbs became through deindustrialization places of um, uh, lower income and uh, various forms of impoverishment these ones won't make that many years the the the, the quality of the arc um, the, of the buildings is so low that they will have to be rebuilt within probably my lifetime. That's my guess. Oh, that's a really interesting one because, of course, I mean, the Victorian terraces are notoriously terribly built and they're still with us. I mean, they're hideous if you ever have to try and work with one. The quality of the masonry work is terrible. The bricks are really bad. The timber is all minimally sized so that any kind of damage or, or, or issue things you want to do with them you're going to kind of fall through and and yet they're still with us because we have this privatized property market whereby as soon as something's owned by a person it's almost indestructible when it's owned by a corporation when it's owned by a council like council housing regeneration is kind of possible when stuff is owned by the individual and the most extreme example of this is actually in in, in um, some of the, the Plotlands communities that still survive. So uh, we're doing a lot of work in Jaywick Sands, which is uh, an extraordinary community. Um, and it didn't exist. A hundred years ago, Jaywick Sands was just a salt marsh. There was nothing there. Now it's a community of about 5,000 homes, about 3,000 of which are on the floodplain. And most of those were literally built as beach huts and people are living in them. And the councils over a number of years, kind of in the, well, really from when it was built through to the kind of late 90s, basically wanted to wipe it off the face of the planet. They just did not want this place to exist. But it's almost, it's basically impossible for them to do that because those plots are owned by people. And those people, unless you're going to compulsory purchase out 3,000 people, don't want to, <laughs> don't want to go anywhere. So despite the fact that, I mean, I, I, the, the houses are very charming actually in many respects and are a kind of real architectural marvel and you know, worthy of dissertations being written about them from a kind of self-built perspective, but from a safety perspective, from a climate perspective, from an energy efficiency perspective, from a health perspective, they're appalling. I mean, the, you know, they are beyond salvage in many cases. But it's almost impossible for anyone to do anything about that. So mm -hmm. I, I think that maybe you may be right that some of the houses that have been built over the last 20 years shouldn't exist. But I suspect they're going to exist just because they're owned by people. I see. And those people have an asset that they need to cling on to. Oh, we could talk about plot lands forever. I, I mean, it's just the most fascinating and um, romantic I think it's probably the most romantic thing of the last hundred years in architecture. I, 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 uh, I, uh, I've been visiting them up on the North Kent coast, and I went on summer holidays um, to see some uh, ones up in on the Lincolnshire coast called the Fitties. It's a settlement called the mm -hmm. Fitties, and uh, it's remarkable. I mean, yeah, not only not only vernacular, but also maintaining sort of what you might describe as sort of traditional lifestyles within it. Um, very very strange. But anyway, I wanted to get so this issue of placemaking really interesting, and you talk about the idea of educating young people in placemaking and also you talk in another one of your, your documents about the idea of how do we connect it's in fact on your on your beautifully written if i might say blog um virtual hannah um this idea of how do we connect with young people 
so that they have a voice in the development of plans, I suppose, at a macro and a micro scale. Um, so I, yeah, I would like to like you to, I suppose, talk about that a little bit. Like what, what does education in placemaking look like? How might it work? Does it only occur at university level? Does it only occur in a kind of, for a professional class of people who are going to be involved in actually decision-making or how do we draw it down into less well-voiced people? I think that it's actually the opposite. I think it needs to be in school from day one. And I think there are lots of aspects to this. Um, so, uh, Children and, uh, and young people are, are educated almost not at all about their physical environment, yeah. the physical environment that they will occupy for their lives because we do all occupy physical space. And that's on the level of, you know, how to hang a door or put up a shelf in your mm -hmm. house um, or what your boiler does and how your boiler works or your heat pump if we're going down that route through to how you know a street is is made and put together and mm -hmm. the agency that you as a citizen have over what happens in your neighborhood it's seen as something that's just done by other people it's seen that something that happens to you mm -hmm. um you buy a boiler in a box and you get a plumber to put it in and that's the end of it but actually you know and this comes to the climate question we need to be able to have that circular economy and that circular way of working with our physical environment that isn't a consumer disposable culture. And to me, that starts with understanding how to maintain your own home, how mm. to make sure that you actually understand, you, you know, you take your car to the garage for its MOT every year. No one takes their house for its MOT. No one even thinks about their asset that they rent or that they invest in as something that requires maintenance and then the contribution that we make to the wider physical environment beyond the front door you know even on a, again on a climate level let's just start really basic you know paving over your front garden to make your parking spaces has an impact on the biodiversity of your area has an impact on the flooding of your area in, in a downpour but no one's really taught to think like that they're not really lo looking at the environment that they're inhabiting and saying well what is it that I do here that is impacting it and how do my actions make change positive change or, or negative change in this situation mm -hmm. and then kind of going to the wider to the wider perspective you know it is about um, I think about democracy and about the fact that we are all citizens in the world and we should have a voice in it and kids you know our kids have um, citizenship education where they're talked about how to elect an MP and that kind of thing um, but at the local level understanding how you can get involved with some of the processes that probably impact your life much more on a day-to-day -day basis than which MP is in parliament mm. you're not taught anything you're not taught how to comment on a planning application let's say or how to find out what the highways authority is doing what your rights are in that situation you know if your neighbour is doing construction work at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, do you even have the right to complain about that? If the highways authority is digging up your street and you can't get your kids to school because you don't have a car and you can't go around, you know, what are your rights in that situation? So there's a sort of rights perspective and then there's an agency perspective to say, well, they're going to dig up the street. Do you even like 
what they're going to be putting in there. Mm. You know, why aren't they planting more trees? How can we get some more trees on our street? How can we get, uh, you know, that that horrible corner down the back of the alley, in the, in, which is a sort of, you know, that classic space left over after planning, you know, the bit where everyone hangs out and leaves rubbish. You know, how can you do something about that? How can you make that space better? Who do you need to talk to? Can you get ownership of it? Can you talk to the council? Whose job is it even to do that stuff? So people just see this stuff and they, they'll complain about it and they'll hate the fact that, you know, there's always garbage dumped at the corner out there because it's a piece of land that hasn't got any real function or no one really looks after. But no one has really taught how to engage with that in a way that could make a positive impact. So to me, it's quite practical on many levels. It's not about saying, oh, let's get lots more people into careers and, and this kind of thing. It's actually just how am I a good citizen in my own neighbourhood mm -hmm. and how do I exercise my rights as a citizen in my own neighbourhood uh, and, and ensure that I can kind of get the best for, for my family, my community out of the system. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good way of putting it. And, and for for me, one of the clearest signs that people don't have any feeling of agency, whether they do practically speaking, is the state of pavements in Britain, which are kind of comedy gold. I mean, you've got the utilities companies that are apparently can legitimately just dig it up and then patch over, over and over again, um, without ever maintaining it. And you end up with environments that are incredibly um, dangerous to walk on, actually. Um, wow, we're having a real whiz through here. Sorry, I've got to get to my charger because my laptop suddenly said it was going to die. <laughs> that so better do that before it runs out on me. I will, uh, I will edit this bit out. But um, <laughs> there we are. So, so this idea of participation, yeah, I, I really. Uh, I've been interested in it since since sort of first encountering the Skeffington Report, 1969, isn't it? The Skeffington Report, uh, People and Planning. Um, and, and it corresponded to Sherry Arnstein's brilliant paper, mm. The Ladder of Citizen Participation. So there's obviously this great, and you know, it's one year after yeah. the student revolutions in, in yeah. Europe, student uh, riots in Europe. And, and we have this thing that happens where participation as a strategy becomes embedded within a system and defanged, I would suggest, by it. And you talk about the possibilities of participation. How do we, how do we, I mean, I'd quite like your reflections on the idea of participation in that respect, the way that participation has remained extremely manipulative. I mean, I was talking to Henry Sanoff, the um, doyen of kind of participatory planning in America, uh, and 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 he said, you know, we use this word design charrette. Mm -hmm. Most people have no idea what the word charrette even means. Mm -hmm. My gut feeling is that they're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. My gut feeling is that the the languages and even the practices, the spatial visual um, orientation of these events, is specifically designed to foreground a certain type of engagement which preferences a certain kind of epistemological framing of reality, that is to say, middle class. Um, 
And my gut feeling is that no change in participation and participation in planning is ever going to occur that changes that because that's very advantageous to the type of people that um, produce planning and then use planning. Am I, am I being too cynical or is that fairly accurate? I think you're not being too cynical on the political level because, and again, this comes down to the exercise of one's voice as a citizen democratically. You know, most of the people who, who vote regularly and consistently come from a particular part of society. However, you know, we obviously have notoriously seen a few elections and, and votes recently where other parts of society have made their voice very, very strongly heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that those of us who engaged in different forms of participation as a practice, you know, we would all say that that's not the case, that we're not trying to privilege middle class voices. In fact, the opposite of that one's constantly striving and struggling to try and privilege those other voices in that debate, because the middle class voices, as you as you rightly say, they will always come and talk and, and, and shout loudly, regardless of whether we go out and make any effort to engage them at all. Mm-hmm. They'll come along um, and make sure that they're heard. Um, but I, I suppose there are two strands to participation, aren't there? There's a formal participation, which is encoded in, in, in kind of policy and regulation and processes that take place. And then there is, if you like, the, the informal, the, or the more kind of encircling uh, work around participation um, and I think we aren't very clear about the difference between those processes and what role they have uh, because you know formal participation if you like it's like a sort of voting or whatever you know you can leave a formal comment on a planning application or you can leave a formal comment as part of a consultation on planning policy or on things like that but that really is only one part of what participation means and in fact I would probably argue that those comments are the least influential way that you can get involved because at that point in time you know when something's got to a point where it's a a kind of a finalized proposal if you like it's gone in for, for for this formal consultation it's already gone through a lot of work to get to that point it's already very well shaped, will have a lot of evidence behind it, whether you agree with it or not, but there will be a lot of work that's gone to support that as an application or as a proposal. Um, And any comment you leave is going to have to be weighed up on its planning merits against all of that other work and evidence. And it's highly unlikely that you as an individual will have better evidence or, you know, more knowledge on a subject that can somehow refute the evidence that's already being put forward. But the question is, how do those proposals even get to the point where they're submitted? Like, what is the process before that? How do we get, how how do those proposals get shaped in the early stages? And that's a difficulty because at the moment we have no formal processes around that. (laughs) Excuse me. And only very vague uh, guidance and and sort of suggestions really nice nudges to say well you know as a developer you really should engage with your community to help shape your proposals you know we might look on it more kindly if you heard evidence that you've you've talked to people about it um, and and likewise with planning policy you know again you know it's 
it's seen as favorable, but there's no structure around that. Mm. Um, but that's the important bit. It's actually the stuff that happens around it. And I think, you know, there's, this is where the, 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 the ethics and the uh, philosophy is, is important because it's very difficult to put rules in place that say, this is what good participation looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, once you start to put uh, rules in place, they're very ossified, they're too general, they don't take account of the specificity of a particular community, particular environment, particular proposal. They lead to lazy practices, mm -hmm. just fox ticking, um, and no real value comes out of that. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think, it, I think it is an interesting moment because people have a lot more ways to share their voice now. So online, you know, of course, is, is a really big forum whereby people, lots of different sorts of people can start making clamours and do make clamours about all sorts of things. And it's quite revealing to see how I think that is starting to change the discourse mm. uh, and, and make that wider participation as an activity more urgent for developers and for the people involved with with the development industry on, on the public and the private side because actually you can start getting yourself into pretty hot water and whilst I, 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 I'm always reluctant to argue for better participatory practices on an instrumental basis that somehow it will make your life easier you know we've got to that, that is a that is a reality that is a lever there to say well you know maybe you need to take this more seriously because if you don't you might get a lot of kickback a lot of problems arising down the line yeah yeah because you talk about it you 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 talked about i think for for a lot of folk the assumption is that when they participate their voice will be materially manifest in what is built that they will see themselves or see their community's identity expressed in what is built like that participation is a mechanism you put it here um it's to influence how the plan is shaped or is it a user testing or is it to gather evidence or is it more direct and i think most people suspect it's well i think the assumption is that it's more direct and and that that i don't think is the from my experience and from what i've seen i can't believe that 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 is the case so it's it's something more nuanced than that as you say but doesn't participation doesn't it sort of insulate people in positions of decision making from the kind of terrible things that are about to be done to communities isn't that kind of it can do it definitely can do and you know there was a project that we were working on not long ago we're actually not working on it anymore we had a site parting of ways with the client on it but um the, the client was actually local authority um won't be named um and um they ran some quote-unquote engagement stuff and it's a bit unusual actually because normally when we do engagement we do the engagement in this situation we were being hired as the architects for this particular project and the local authority were very clear they did the engagement we didn't have any role in in kind of shaping what that might look like and they had a series of steps that they went through um, which included you know a webinar and an online questionnaire and blah 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 blah, blah and 
that two webinars and we went to, you know so we dutifully turn up to the two, two two webinars online with an audience I think combined of maybe two people in the first one and literally nobody attending the second one but you know that would allow them to tick the box and say well you know if they didn't come they can't care very much can they about it you know it's all fine which of course you know we know it's just not the case. They didn't come because they didn't know about it. You didn't market it well enough. You didn't make it accessible enough. You didn't do, you know, do all of the things you could have done to make sure that people come because sure as hell, when you start building this thing, they're going to know about it and they're going to say, why did I not know this was happening? Mm. And it's not going to be enough for the local authority to say, oh, well, you know, we had some webinars on it. <laughs> did you not see the, the thing we put out, you know, or the whatever, the leaflet that came through your door and got mixed up with the pizza leaflets or whatever it yeah. might be. Um, so it can, it can insulate and, uh, as you say, and that, that is a very dangerous uh, thing to happen uh, on, on a political as well as just on a philosophical level. So I want to, I want to finish. I, I did want to sort of touch on ideas of the rural urban divide, but I think that's another conversation. Perhaps we can have that one day um, because I think your reflections on that are particularly interesting. But I did want to, I sort of wanted to finish on a kind of what does the future look like for planning for architecture in these in these cases? My my gut feeling, I'm becoming kind of warm and fuzzy inside about things because uh, <laughs> if you don't laugh, you'll cry. No, um, because because I think my 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 feeling is that there is an emerging sense, and maybe it's through digital. I don't know. That's um, that people want to be more engaged in the production of healthy places uh, with better lives possible within it. Um, I don't know, do you have that feeling? I mean, with people like you involved, that must be true, but is that a general feeling? And, and if so, kind of, how do we get, how do we get there? I think people do really want to be involved. Um, there's a huge appetite. But it is really hard. People have busy lives. Well, I suppose, actually, I should backtrack a little bit. Are you saying when you say people, do you mean like general people or do you mean sort of architects and professionals? Well, I mean, that's a very that's a very good question. I, I my my normal feeling is is to go with the people um, because that's that's kind of an easy again. That's, I, I suspect that's just me insulating myself from implicating myself in that but i think there's the, yeah there's the architects as well how do architects become re-engaged that's a really good question like how do architects become re-engaged in something that they very frequently feel is against them and then how do how do the general public shape it well i think architects um do have a relatively poor understanding of the planning system and certainly it has been really insightful for me to train as a planner and you know halfway through my career kind of step onto the other side of of the fence if you like into local authority planning team it's just been incredibly interesting to see it from the other side and to to, to understand what those conversations look like um, when you're when you're when you're facing an architect or a team a developer mm -hmm. team across the table uh, and, I, and I, I guess think... I, I, my, gut, my gut feeling is that it was um, surprising and interesting, but no, not in a kind of unicorns and rainbows kind of way. Not in a unicorns and rainbows way, but also you realise how 
um, you know, how many architects come and present things to you and they don't really, they're not really presenting what is helpful to you to see. And, and from, a, from, a, from a perspective of a planner, you know, actually the way that they're talking about their schemes, their priorities are often really not developed with a good understanding of what priorities might look like for all the other partners who are involved, including the planning authority and often including the community. They think they do understand it, but actually their wider peripheral vision around how their proposal sits nested into so many other things that are happening in the area um, is often, you know, it's often not that well understood. And I think that architects could do with a bit more, um, you know, probably in university as well as in practice, a little, little bit more of an awareness of, of planning as a discipline. But, you know, there is a huge energy and, and an appetite to get engaged. Um, we've got to try and find processes that are equitable for that engagement to me that's just really important uh so and that you know that does take account of you know if, if we're going on to the the, the 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 general uh we the people rather than we the architects um the people who have the most to lose and probably the most gain through the process on a from, from a perspective of equality um are the people who have the least capacity, the least time, the least ability to get involved. You know, when you're busy juggling your three jobs and your children and your horrible landlord, you know, what energy have you got left in the day to start shaping your neighbourhood? So it's no coincidence that, you know, the areas that have the most neighbourhood plans going on, for instance, tend to be really middle class areas, because, of course, those people have plenty of time to go to lots of nice meetings in the evening and, you know, develop uh, neighbourhood plans and, and take all of that time to do that. So I, I think that there is something around how we uh, remunerate financially people for their engagement, actually, um, how we make it a part of their lives in the way that jury service, for instance, is a part of people's lives. You do your jury service, whether you are, you know, uh, from whatever background. In fact, in, in jury service, is almost the opposite, isn't it? It's middle class people tend to opt out of jury service because they tend to come up with great excuses why they can't possibly take time out of their busy lives. Um, you know, and, and I think we, we should try and look at some of those processes to say, well, maybe we can learn from how the justice, you know, coming back to where we started, which is the relationship between planning and the law, how the justice system works with the participation of individuals within that. And actually, mm -hmm. despite a lot of problems with the justice system, definitely not perfect. There's still a relative amount of, of trust, actually, in that as a process. There's a relative amount of trust in jury trial and also the role of magistrates, I think, is really interesting. You know, magistrates are fundamentally lay people who are trained to a certain level in the law, but they're not lawyers. They're not formally qualified in that way. Um, and they have a, a really interesting community role, I think, in how they advocate um, and, and understand their community at that very kind of neighbourhood level of the sort of relatively low level but still impactful and, 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 and difficult crimes and, and so forth that come in front of them. So I'd quite like us to see more exploration and pilot programmes about how we can get people involved with these processes in a way that 
is paid and is seen as a part of their life that is it's fine for them to take time out of their life to do that it's okay there's space that is carved out there's childcare that's carved out there's whatever there needs to be kind of carved out and to see what difference that might make and I, I, we haven't really done that in this country we really haven't done very much at all to even try what that might look like and it might fail hideously it may, might make no difference it might result in huge conflicts uh, you know big arguments big fights uh, a lot of missed expectations or, or you know difficult things but I do think that if we don't try we don't know and I think also if we don't try and I think this goes for a lot of public policy wider than planning you know I think it goes for benefits policy and immigration policy and all sorts of things we are very fragmented aren't we politically there is there is very little trust in politicians, experts, professionals, you know, local council officers, civil servants, and so forth. We just don't think that they have our interests at heart. Uh. Most of them do. They really want to do a good job. They're not evil people. They're trying in difficult circumstances to balance a lot of things. And I think that if we could get people more involved with that stuff, a little bit under the hood, then there might be the possibility that they understand how difficult it is to make those decisions and mm. be a little bit less quick to polarise into the kind of extremes of what they think should or shouldn't happen in the world. So that might sound very rainbows and unicorns, but I, I think that we have a bigger political question here about participation in policy making. Um, it goes beyond planning. And I think we may be in for some very sticky times if we don't solve it. And I think if you look at places like Ireland, you know, they just recently had that really fascinating exercise around oh, a tricky subject with the others, but abortion law and so forth in, in the Republic. And actually, you know, they reached some really interesting conclusions through just having normal people involved with that. The, um, the, that's really interesting. And I, it's not, it doesn't sound too um, unicorns and rainbows to me. It's... Um, I've been struck by something, and I, I'm going to put a word to it, but I think there's something. We talk a lot about consent in certain areas of our life, and we, the law works, and you're right, people generally speaking trust the law because they feel the law is consensual. In fact, law is mysteriously co-produced insofar as most people abide by the law all the time. I, I very rarely break the law, um, uh, and only ever when I'm driving a bit too quick, and that's only by, generally speaking, accident. Um, so, so law has this built-in consent process, mm -hmm. and we are the, the legal process is consensual. I would suggest that planning doesn't feel consensual. No. And I sus suppose what your... your um, description points to is a is a way of gaining the public's consent through actually genuinely consulting them because that's the way the law works it's like yeah. the, the law generally speaking does what people think to be right but planning, yeah, I, but planning doesn't smack of that and i think that that's so i think your your proposal is very intriguing Yes, and I, I think you're absolutely right about the co-production aspect, and that works in those different ways, as you say, that works just through the practices people have in their daily lives, and um, 
you know, we're, we're quite aware of, if you say, a speed limit, you know, simple rules like that where we should or shouldn't drive too fast or, you know, talk on our phone when we're driving or whatever, and simple penalties, well understood. Generally, as you say, we consent to them. We don't sort of object massively to them. Um, but we're going to start having a set of really difficult ones, aren't we, around climate, for instance, and what is it necessary for us to do as a society mm -hmm. to address the climate crisis? And consent is going to be so critical there mm -hmm. because you can see some of those starting to become really difficult. And I suppose just to end on, on one thing, which is to me that kind of participation engagement processes are not just about how you if you like co-produce the rules, but they are also a process of how you explain and unpack clearly and communicate really clearly with communities what the challenges are that you're even trying to address. Mm. You know, because you can't come up with an answer if you don't really understand the question. Mm. So uh, to get meaningful participation, I think we do need to get a lot better at just the simple communicating how do we talk to people and unpack this stuff in a way that they can relate to? So you relate to mobile phones and driving because, you know, you're told and it is fairly evident when you pass a smash on the motorway, what the kind of cause and effect is there. For some of these other things, they are really difficult. You, you, there just isn't that same cause and effect. The cause and effect is, is very sort of hidden. It's there, but it's definitely not that evident. So yeah, so how do we get consent for things that are fundamentally very complex, I guess, is a, a really interesting question. And on that question, I think we will finish. Thank you ever so much, Hannah. I thought that was a really, really fascinating insight into, into planning. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Golly gee, that was good. Thanks to Hannah for a very enlightening discussion. Please see the podcast description for links to her website, socials, and to some of her writing. And of course, please like, follow, subscribe and share A's for Architecture. Your grandma, grandpa, your dad, your mum, your brothers and sisters, your aunts and uncles this Christmas. Cheers. Cheers.